we are looking here at the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I'm going to look at it under three headings. I use headings because I think it helps us see the reasoning as the thing goes forward. And the three headings are, first of all, the promise. The promise of Christ's return. Secondly, the problem, which I will explain as we go on. And thirdly, the possession. The Lord Jesus invites the sheep uh, to take possession of, to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the beginning of the world. <clears throat> now, before we get into the parable itself, I want to point out that there are different kinds of parable. The first parable in this chapter 25 is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And that parable is introduced by the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, or some similar such words. And then that introduction is followed by what is obviously a made-up story. Uh, the Lord Jesus is not uh, pretending in some way that he is reporting on an actual event when he talks about the ten virgins, five of whom had oil in their lamps and five of them didn't as they waited for the bridegroom to come. <clears throat> I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. It could have happened. But in telling the parable, the Lord Jesus is not pretending that it actually had happened. He is saying, imagine that. And then he is able to tell a story and draw lessons, spiritual lessons from it. Now when we come to the parable of the sheep and the goats, that's quite different. Because the opening words of this parable are when the Son of Man comes in his glory. There's no if. He doesn't say if the Son of Man comes. He doesn't say imagine that the Son of Man comes in his glory or suppose that the Son of Man comes in his glory. He says when it's going to happen. He's not telling a made-up story here. He is predicting future history. And that is something we do need to get our heads around. This is real. This is something that is going to happen. And of course we don't rely upon the parable to be sure of that. One commentator has uh, listed 100 mentions or references to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. The return or the second coming of Christ is mentioned in numerous places in the New Testament. Almost every one of the New Testament writers, I think, mentions the return of Christ. Uh, it's, it's interesting that 
while there is no direct reference, or perhaps just one, in the Old Testament to the return of Christ, let me read that one possible example. <clears throat> and uh, here it is in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel is having visions, of course. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, reference to God the Father, of course. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, then to him, it is the one, the Son of Man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now that, I think, is a direct reference to the return of Christ in glory. But, you know, throughout the Old Testament, situations are foreseen, they are prophesied, they are predicted, which can only come about by the return of Christ. And the references to an everlasting kingdom, that favourite verse, we have at Christmas time, or use at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Eternal God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of his government there will be no end. He's going to reign forever upon the throne of David. He will sit forever. Now these things have not come about, have they? That the Lord Jesus Christ has not come to institute a situation where, to quote another a passage in Isaiah, uh, the lion uh, will feed upon grass and the sheep will lie down with the bear and nothing shall hurt in all my holy mountain. There are many references in the Old Testament that point to a future time when things will be so different from what they are now, when, when there will be a transformation of life, of humanity, and above all, there will be one king over all nations. So the return of Christ, we could say, is written large throughout the scriptures. It's real, it's going to happen, and it's going to affect us. Now, let me just give a couple of, um, couple of New Testament references. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says in, in Matthew 24 
And verse 29 is part of a much longer dissertation about his return. But he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will to get, gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Then, of course, you, you, you know that in the opening verses of the Acts of the Apostles, the ascension of Jesus Christ is recorded. He, he was there with his disciples and he suddenly went up, quite literally, <clears throat> and disappeared in the clouds. And the disciples, obviously, with wide open mouths, were watching this amazing event occur. And two men in white garments, obviously angels, but they looked like men, said, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? This same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven will come again in like manner going to come back. But then I want to draw your attention and read to you another passage in 2 Peter in chapter 3 and verse 10. We have a statement of great importance I think. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. So when he said thief in the night, he's not saying they're coming silently, he's coming silently. They're saying that he is coming unexpectedly, suddenly, when no one is expecting. It will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in them uh, will be burned up or laid bare, alternative translations. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for looking forward to, that means, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now the particular importance of that statement is that 
Peter sees there are moral implications in expecting Christ's return. And of course you find this throughout the New Testament. In New Testament days, everyone, every Christian, every church was actively looking for the return of Christ. And it affected the way they lived. What manner of people ought you to be, says Peter, seeing that, that Christ is coming and all these uh, present earthly institutions uh, are going to be dissolved, replaced. What kind of people ought you to be? Well, he says, what kind of people uh, we ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. So there we have a, a very important statement. The expectation of Christ's return has moral implications for believers. And in New Testament times, it certainly did that. Martyrdom, even, uh, was for some at least a consequence of knowing that Christ was coming back and that their martyrdom would be vindicated and that they themselves would be raised again from the dead. These are very important principles for the New Testament Christian, but they are not, I fear, important principles for us today. Now, to some extent you can understand that. The Lord never said when he was coming back. He never told them, he never told us, the Bible does not tell us when Christ will return. And in fact, Peter takes up, uh, elsewhere in his second letter, takes up the accusation of the skeptics who say where is the promise of his coming for all things continue as they were from the beginning where's the evidence they say where's there any indication that Christ is coming back and they dismissed it as a fairy story as a tale as something made up to stimulate people uh, to activity. And I fear that because of the 2,000 years delay that there has been in the return of Christ and whatever further delay there may be until he comes, many Christians, many churches have bought into the skepticism of those people uh, with whom Peter had an argument. Now, Peter had an answer, of course, as well. He had an argument, but he had an answer. And the answer was this. They are ignorantly, the skeptics are ignorantly unaware. They are deliberately unaware that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. And a day like a thousand years. God is outside of time. To him there has been no delay. 
he will come and he will come in time at a time of his choosing Christ will come but because of the long delay as I say we have today most of us I think we might include ourselves here too and churches today have really put the second coming of Christ on the back burner it, it's it's something we don't think about something we don't worry about it's something we very seldom preach about and therefore it has no impact upon our moral behavior and that brings me to my second point which is concerning the sheep and the goats I, I call it the problem because many people have difficulties with this parable because it appears to teach justification by works who are the sheep they're the people who did good things who are the goats they're the people who didn't do good things and therefore those people <coughs> were judged according to their works and people say well oh, this is this is just difficult because the New Testament teaches that we're not saved by works. Quote again, uh, one of my favourite passages, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God before ordained that we should walk in them good works are vital, essential, important but they are the consequence of our salvation and not its cause but they are a necessary consequence and it brings us to the heart of this parable and the heart of this parable and I'll explain this in a moment is the statement in John's Gospel <coughs> chapter 13 verses 34 and 35 Jesus says to his disciples I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you that you should love one another by this shall all men know that you are my disciples because you love one another well three times in two verses he, uh, he makes that statement you must love one another. He's talking to disciples and he's talking to the relationship between disciples. Now when we come back to the parable we have to understand that while the opening verse refers to the judgment of all mankind it refers to all nations and then it starts to be particular because immediately Christ begins to separate 
individuals, sheep from the goats. But more important for our purpose today is this, that the viewpoint of the parable has now narrowed. Everybody will be judged, every human being ever born and reaching the age of discretion will be there at the judgment. But the parable isn't talking about everybody. It's not talking about the people of other religions, people who never heard about Christ. It's not talking about the generality of mankind. Verse 1 may be, but the moment the Lord Jesus starts talking about the shepherd, the sheep and the goats, the whole perspective has, has narrowed to those who profess to be following Christ. Now we know that because in both cases the sheep and the goats they both say Lord when did we see you? In trouble, in prison, a stranger, naked, hungry, thirsty. Lord when did we see you? Like that. And the goats say exactly the same thing. Lord. So both the sheep and the goats are people who acknowledge Christ as Lord. They are professing followers of Christ. And the key here, you see, is that Christ is putting their profession to the test. Notice again, he says, insofar as you did it or didn't do it, to the least of these my brethren. He's talking about the way professing Christians treat other professing Christians. Or professing Christians treat other genuine Christians. And what he is doing, you see, is demonstrating that our behaviour towards other Christian people is an indication of our obedience or disobedience to the great law of Christ, the great commandment of Christ, that you love one another. And, and the criterion is a very strict one, isn't it? I knew a new commandment I give to you, <clears throat> that you love one another as I have loved you. He's setting the standard very high, isn't he? Our love for our fellow believers should be of a standard that matches Christ's love for us. A love that brought him down from the glory of his uh, eternal sonship into this world of sin. The love that caused him to suffer the ignominy of being rejected by the very people the very creatures he had made. The ultimate indignity of being hung upon a cross by those creatures because he loved us. 
He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, says the old hymn. Christ loved us to the absolute ultimate. Now he says, as I loved you, you must love one another. <clears throat> that, as I say, is a very high standard. Now, we will not live up to that standard because we are sinners. There's no way that we can love fully as Christ has loved us. But we can try. And enabled by the Holy Spirit, we shall, to some measure at least, succeed. And I think the moral implications of the return of Christ uh, are here in this parable trickling down and addressing our moral responsibilities uh, to other believers. It's so easy uh, to say, oh, I, I, I love my brethren, I love uh, the people in my church, I love <coughs> these people, uh, the wonderful people, I love them. But where is the proof of that love? Uh, the Lord says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. It's proof that you're real, that your profession is not an empty profession. Uh, but you know, all men, all people around, I can't see what's in my heart. They can't see what I think about you, what I feel about you. I, I may love you, but they can't see it, can they? The only thing they can see is when I put that love into action, then they can see that love is real. And of course, James, in his letter, spends a lot of time on this. He says, if somebody comes in among you who is poor and ragged and hungry, uh, and you say, oh, God bless you, go and be clothed, go and be fed. But you don't do anything about it yourself. You don't give him clothing, you don't give him food, you don't give him drink. He says, how does the love of God dwell in that person? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, there is no love of God in that man's heart. H how, he says, how he, can you say that you love God, whom you have not seen, James still, how can you love God, whom, who you have not seen, and, and you don't love your brother, who you have seen? And so the whole question here is the reality of our professed faith in Christ. We are to demonstrate that love. And if we are sheep, we shall demonstrate that love. And you see, the Lord says, if you showed this practical love, this implemented love, this powerful love, if you showed it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you showed it to me. And so insofar as we love one another in practice, not in word only, but in deed, 
Insofar as we do that, we are demonstrating our love for Christ. Now this is a great challenge. Because I see I've been a Christian for, uh, for what, how long? Uh, 60 years, 70 years, 70 years I've been a Christian. And I have seen a lot of very unloving activity between Christians. In fact, I think I can honestly say that my own experience of being badly treated has come mainly from Christians, not from people outside of the church or unbelievers. It's a great challenge. How far are we proving, demonstrating our love for one another and therefore our love for Christ by the things that we do, by the lives that we lead, by the choices we make, practical things which fulfill uh, the Lord's command in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well then, with that challenge we must lead, we must pass on to our third point. And this isn't going to take long. The possession. The promise, the problem, and the possession. He says to the sheep, receive, you blessed of my father, receive the kingdom that God prepared for you from uh, the beginning of the world. We're receiving a possession. And what is that possession? Well, we might say it's, it's heaven. And in a sense, that is true. But the, the heaven to which we look forward, the possession which we will one day enter into, is both a spiritual possession and a practical and physical possession because we are told that there will be new heavens and a new earth and in the book of Revelation which I have avoided deliberately quoting because it is so symbolic sometimes easy to misunderstand uh, it says that we shall receive that inheritance when Christ returns we shall receive that kingdom and what will it be like? Well, it will be like, and this is the book of Revelation, Jerusalem adorned as a bride for her husband, descending out of heaven to earth. There will be not only new heavens, but there will be a new earth. We don't understand exactly what that kingdom will mean, what it will be, what we shall experience. I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. We don't know. We, we, we will never understand it in complete uh, fashion until we're actually there. But I do want to finish by reading you not the description of heaven that we get in the book of Revelation, because, of course, the book of Revelation is uh, uh, written in the 
apocalyptic style in which everything is is symbolized and therefore it's not easy to discern <coughs> symbol from reality uh, but I'm going to bring it from Hebrews in chapter 12 and we're going to spend just a little while looking at this before we finish uh, chapter 12 um, the writer here is contrasting the old and new covenants and he says you have not come to to the mount that was that burned with fire and so on talking about the law given through Moses but we are interested in what we have come to so he says but you have come to Mount Zion this is verse 22 of chapter 12 you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God the judge of all to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel ah, there are nine things there I'm not going to start a 9.7 now, <coughs> don't worry. But they can be divided into three uh, divisions. First of all, we have come to a place. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and to the new Jerusalem. Three descriptions of our inheritance of our kingdom are viewed as a place, a location uh, and those, each of those has a, a significance obviously we don't have time to go into that significance but remember that the new Jerusalem is that which comes down from heaven and so it will be in some ways a part of the new earth it is the city of the living God and because he lives, we live. Our eternal life is vested entirely in the everlasting life of the Son of God. We are united with him through faith. And because of that, we are members, citizens of the city of the living God. Citizens of heaven. And we are that now. But we are citizens in exile. We're not in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, says uh, Paul to the Philippians. We're citizens of heaven, but we are in exile. And so we've got something to look forward to, something which is beyond our comprehension at this moment. We are members of the city of the living God. The kingdom of heaven means that we are members of the city of God we are citizens of the new Jerusalem and we have come to Mount Zion which of course as we saw in a, an earlier sermon is symbolic of the presence and glory of God among his people 
Well, then there's another category. We've come to a place, but we've also come to a people. Let's just see where that comes up in the Hebrews passage. You have come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to the spirits of just men made perfect. We've come to a people. We sometimes feel very much alone, don't we, as Christians. Certainly in some circumstances, we feel very lonely in an unbelieving world. But we are citizens of this this huge empire, if you like, the empire of Christ. Uh, And it consists of all the angelic beings, the hosts of the Lord. It consists of all the members of the true church of Jesus Christ whose names are registered in heaven as are ours if we are among the sheep and we have come to the spirit of just men made perfect and then following up on that there is a final category of description here of the inheritance that we shall receive. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. We have come to perfection, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We have come to perfection. We will, when we inherit this kingdom to the full, we will be perfect. And John in his first epistle can write, Brethren, now are we the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, when he returns, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that is perfection. That's what we have to look forward to. And that is all implied by our anticipation and desire to see Christ return and in this life to behave accordingly, especially in the way we treat our fellow believers. Love one another as I have loved you that you should love one another, so shall all men know that you are truly my disciples.